vibes for the Toronto Blue Jays. Pretty high right now, despite a tough week last week, a sweep in Boston. We'll get that started. Get that moving in the right direction, of course. An Got opportunity. the best-looking man in baseball atop the order, too. They, they do. Will he last atop the order? We will see. But yeah, this is a good opportunity for the Blue Jays here with four against the Cleveland Guardians who may be missing Jose Ramirez for portions of it, are dealing with some issues from the, or some injuries rather, from the starting pitching perspective. Really, they have all year. So it's an opportunity to do what they've been doing all year, which is beat up on bad teams and bank wins in the wins column to discuss the Blue Jays weekend and more. And what's ahead? Let's bring in our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. That insider is Dan Schulman, Blue Jays play-by-play announcer, of course, for Sportsnet. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, guys. How are you? Uh, we are doing pretty good. So 14 games above 500 for the Blue Jays. Uh, it's the most they've been above 500 at any point this season. Vibes are good after a weekend at Fenway. Uh, when you look back on the weekend, I guess what's ahead here, we don't know how this Guardian series is going to go, but a weekend in Fenway where you take three, where you score a bunch of runs, where a guy comes out of nowhere or AAA to play a starring role at least for one weekend, what do you think it did for the club? Oh, I think it's monstrous. I mean, going into that series, they're two games ahead of the Red Sox. Like, the Red Sox are the closest team to them. Um, and, and I'm not saying it was the nail in the coffin that they swept it, but all of a sudden, like, you want to talk about where the vibes are not good now, go go to Red Sox Twitter for a little bit this morning and check out how things were going there after the Blue Jays series. So I, I think it was huge. The Baltimore series was discouraging, right? Like, they couldn't score. I think they had, I'm going to try to remember, 18 hits in the four games. I don't remember how many runs they scored, but the easy answer is not enough. And it just, you know, when you don't hit, vibes are bad, right? It, because everything just kind of looks blah. So then David Schneider shows up, and he has this historic weekend, and everybody's happy again. So it's it's the, you know, the ebb and flow of a baseball season. One week the sky is falling, and the next week, hey, they're a season-high 14 games over, 500, and everything's great. So, um, it was terrific, you know, and bit by bit, too, like the Angels have fallen off the earth and the Yankees are really struggling and, and they're not home and cooled out. But you look at the standings and the standings look pretty good right now, too. But they, they got to keep it going. Like you said, Cleveland is not the best version of itself right now. They got to keep winning against the Guardians. Yeah, they they certainly do. And, you know, you mentioned the you mentioned David Schneider and the incredible weekend he has. You know, I think a lot of people when they look back to the deadline, there was the the disappointment. And I think for a lot of people that was "Ah, I would have liked to have seen another bat there. But it wasn't just about the bat, really. Right. Because we know the improvements from this team were going to come from what we've seen. George Springer turning it around or Vladdy bouncing back or Bo getting healthy. Like that's where the massive improvement was going to come for this team. But I think the reason why people wanted a bat and why they were looking at Teoscar Hernandez so specifically was a just a injection of life the returning to happiness for for lack of a better term and you know maybe people look and roll their eyes at David Schneider being that guy before the weekend but just somebody coming in and doing something unexpected like it, it really did feel like a shot to the arm I can only imagine what it was like actually being around the team yeah, it was important. I mean, again, against the Orioles, they didn't hit at all. And even though they've got mostly right-handed batters, they haven't hit lefties well at all this year. And we've all seen on a number of occasions where they went to a pinch hitter and Jordan Luplo came up or Santiago Espinal came up. And you want more than that in a pinch hitting situation late in the game with men on base. You want somebody who's a threat. Who knows what David Schneider's week or season or career is going to turn out to be. Obviously, uh, a historic start. 
at Fenway, but he's a threat. He's got power. He takes walks. He has good at bats. He sees a lot of pitches. You know, it's a great story, the mustache in the 28th round and the glove and the everything, right? Like, it's like a, it's like a movie of the week kind of situation. It's a fantastic story. But, um, you know, they just wanted somebody, and, and, and they did try to trade for somebody. I think if they hadn't tried to trade for somebody, he probably would have been up a little bit earlier, to be honest with you. But um, whoever they were going for, whatever the price tag was, it was too much. So they brought up the guy who was the hottest at AAA, and it happened to be him. And, you know, I think there was a lot of discussion internally in the organization about, okay, we know the numbers are great, but, like, is the, is this real? Because this is not a guy with prospect shine on him, right? Again, like 28th round pick, overachiever, just keeps chugging along and opening up people's eyes bit by bit where they say, man, this guy's really good. So, um, it, you know, they shouldn't count on him to be a savior. It's not realistic, and it's not fair to him. They just should count on him to be a contributor, to be a threat. Uh, when he comes up there, be interesting to see how much he plays like Whit Merrifield will be back in the lineup tonight. Um, I'm guessing Schneider still uh, with. So Whit, let's see Whit uh, Varsha will be in center. Kiermaier's not going to be able to play. So Merrifield will be in left. So they need a second baseman could be Schneider, but like Kevin Vishio had a pretty good game last night too, you know, so they, um, I, I'm not sure what they'll do, but he won't play every single day. He's not going to be the regular leadoff hitter or anything like that. But again, whether it's three days a week, five days a week, whatever it is, just be a contributor. If, if he does that, they're in a better shape than they were before the deadline. Fan morning show, Brent Cutting, Justin Cuthbert, talking to Dan Schulman here. And yeah, I think another part of the reason is the surprise factor for a lot of people, right? Is that you, you when you think of middle infielders down in Buffalo, like Arelvis Martinez is a name that comes to mind. I think for a lot of people, Addison Barger is even somebody who came to mind uh, ahead of Davis Schneider. But you have to give him credit. I, I do want to ask you about them putting him in the leadoff spot. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, other guys who maybe would make more sense in that spot, not available, weren't playing. And George Springer, although turning it around, he got bumped out of that spot what did you make of uh, of schneider putting schneider in, in the leadoff spot i thought it was great I, I mean if merrifield were playing he'd have been in there if bichette were healthy and merrifield wasn't playing he'd have been in there because we've seen Bo lead off a number of times they just kind of slide everybody up um you know when we asked john schneider about it he basically kind of said like well why wouldn't i do this like and again with no merrifield and no bichette as you mentioned springer has been taken out of the leadoff spot I don't think they want to yo-yo him back and forth, and, and I get it. I, I think they want to keep him, whether it, it looks like cleanup is going to be his spot. So why wouldn't you put a guy with a, whatever it is, 430 on-base percentage, a triple-A up there just for one game and, and see what happens? And last night, um, I don't care who they had up there or anywhere else, like Gavin Williams was a monster last mm-hmm. night for the Guardians. I mean, that's as, that's as good a game as I've seen anybody pitch, and – that guy's going to be a star, an absolute star. That was unbelievable stuff that the rookie showed last night. So um, I think it was the right choice to put David Schneider up there. But again, Merrifield will be back in there tonight. And I would guess if David Schneider's in the lineup, you know, he, he settles in around six, you know, maybe six right ahead of our show or seven. If our show's hitting six, you know, it depends on what the lineup looks like. But um, I think they think he can handle it because he's a, he appears to be a really kind of chill level headed dude. So, but it, it was more circumstantial than anything else last night. So an encouraging uh, four innings for Hunjin Ryu, I guess not the complete four innings because he takes the comebacker, of course, to end the fourth inning. 
but interesting to track his progress, interesting to track his timeline and trajectory because it was a difficult start last week against the Baltimore Orioles. And then he looks really, really rotation viable for four innings last night, uh, looking like a guy who could be uh, something down the stretch for this Blue Jays team as they continue to run a six-man rotation. But of course, he gets hit. Uh, it is officially a contusion, I guess, uh, through, uh, you know, uh, the Blue Jays last night. I guess they're going to do some more uh, monitoring of the situation. But where do you where do you stand on Ryu now that you've seen him twice? And, and of course, we got to deal with this injury concern here. But right. what we saw last night, what you saw through four innings or the bulk of four innings, where, where, where was your mind going when sort of charting out the future here for the Blue Jays? Yeah, so my mind was going two places. One, he looked really good. Two... Um, you you got to it, it's not uh, like we have to say Cleveland is one of the worst offensive teams in baseball, right? So that you know, just like when Alec Manoa came back against Detroit and looked really good in that first one, you want to see more and more and more. Uh, Cleveland's are a bad offensive team, so I think that has to be taken into consideration. But that having been said, I thought he was good. I thought his changeup was really good last night, and that's such an important pitch for him. Then, unfortunately, he gets hit. Um, if there is good news for the Blue Jays, it's on a couple of fronts. Well, one is, you know, nothing real, no broken bone or anything, obviously, but um, they still have five other starters. So even if he has to miss a turn or two, they can cover this. Like Kikuchi's going tonight and Kikuchi can go Sunday, which originally would have been Ryu going Sunday, but they can just have the five guys go Tuesday through Sunday. And then they have an off day Monday and an off day Thursday next week. And then they can do whatever they want. You can skip guys, push guys back, whatever you want to do. So, um, I don't know, you know, we'll find out more tomorrow or the next day about how he's feeling, but I don't think they have to do anything right now. I think they just have to watch Ryu for a little bit and see how he's feeling and then make a decision. The only thing about it is if they're carrying six starters, that means you're only carrying seven relievers, six of whom pitched in the game last night. You would always like to have another arm in the bullpen if you can. So I think they want to decide with Ryu, is this bad enough to put him on a 15-day IL? And if so, you get another reliever up here, and then you bring him back in 15 days. Hopefully it's not. Um, you know, we've all been hitting the knee with something in our life, and it hurt like hell at the beginning, and it can feel a lot better the next day. So I think they give this a couple of days and watch and see how he's doing. And then hopefully, even if he can't pitch on Sunday, you can put him back in there against the Phillies next week. Um, but it, it's a, the good problem is they've got six guys pitching well right now. And if all stay healthy and all continue to pitch well, it's really interesting because teams don't do this for a long time. You know, and they said they would do it short term and then, you know, kind of figure it out. Um, you know, this is not the way you want to figure it out. So hopefully he's healthy and they have a very tough decision to make about uh, what to do with their rotation going forward. Yeah, generally speaking, uh, when you have tough decisions to make in uh, this sport or any other, it's because uh, things are, are going well. It's not usually a yeah. tough decision because you don't have any uh, available to you. Uh, the guy who has been the best pitcher on this Jays staff uh, since he arrived, uh, although has hit a couple of blips lately, Kevin Godsman. He's going to get the ball in this series. I I'm not going to say I'm concerned, but how much do the Jays need to see Kevin Gosman kind of return to his pre-All-Star break form? I mean, it wasn't a great outing his last time out. The others, uh, you know, I think the game against the Angels, he probably got left in maybe a little too long, but even that's only going five innings. Uh, where are you at on, on Kevin Gosman? And just do you do you expect that he'll kind of continue to be this ace he's been for the Jays? Because since the All-Star break, he hasn't necessarily been that guy. 
Yeah, I, I think it's kind of the way that things go with Gosman because he's so reliant on two pitches, the fastball and the splitter, and he's got others that I'll talk about in a second. But, you know, every now and again, a team will have a really good idea, a really good approach, and they just won't chase very much. And if they don't chase, then, you know, he doesn't have as many other weapons to try, you know, to adjust to and to, to try to get guys out. But he makes remarkable in-game adjustments, I believe. Um, and, and I think he'll be fine. You know, his location's got to be very good as well. If the splitter is too far out of the zone, they're not going to chase, and then it's all about the fastball and how many guys can get deep into a game really relying just on the fastball. So he's got the slider to righties. He's got a, he's got a little toy, a new little toy that I talked to him about <laughs> briefly yesterday, and we'll talk to him uh, more today in advance of his start tomorrow. Uh, against lefties, he's throwing a slower breaking ball. StatCast calls it a sweeper, which is, you know, as you know, the big word this year. So basically it's a slower breaking ball, but it's like 77 miles an hour, whereas the slider's 85. So it is a different pitch. And he's throwing it to lefties like first pitch in the at-bat to try to steal a strike. Uh, not intended for them to swing, kind of like Ross Stripling would use his curveball last year, just steal a strike early in the count. He is a guy who adjusts. He is a guy who tinkers. He's been at this a long time. He's really smart, and he's really, really good at picking up what hitters are and aren't doing against him. So I think he'll be fine. Uh, to me, he is still clearly the number one on this team, and they've got a lot of a, a lot of guys who could battle for the number two spot right now with the way everybody is pitching. But I think, I think he's still clearly the number one, and he'll be just fine. So Jordan Hicks is pretty fascinating, right? Because this is a guy who has the stuff that virtually no Blue Jays relievers had. Sorry, recently. Justin. Let me jump in, Dan. I have you on the line to have to say I you had me cackling with laughter. It was like the second night and Hicks was getting hot and they panned to him in the pen and you went, sounds fast, I got to say. Yeah. And that just cracked me up. Sometimes you just do. Sometimes you're a beautiful professional and sometimes you're just one of us. And it was great to see that slip, buddy. I had to say that, Shulman. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I'm I'm funny in, in short bursts here and there, so I'm. I thank you for noticing that. Yeah. <laughs> funny in short bursts. Uh, yes. Um, I don't. I remember where I was at. With the that Aaron question. Hicks are funny. You're probably going to ask Jordan, how he's being Jordan, utilized. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan yeah. Hicks. Yeah. I was Jordan. Call Mayor. Jordan Hicks. Uh, interesting, right? Because he has the stuff. He's got the tools. He's got these unbelievably desirable traits. And we always hear the cliches like, well, 102 is 102, right? But 102 with Aaron or Jordan Hicks. Now you got me on Aaron. Jordan Hicks, it, it seems a little bit more gettable, if that makes any sense. Like, what do you make of what he has and how he's able to use it and how the Blue Jays can sort of massage those tools mm -hmm. to make sure that he's not loading the bases before getting his first save with the Toronto right. Blue Jays? Well, first of all, he's got to throw strikes like everybody. That's obvious. And he walked a couple of last night, but... Uh, I don't remember the specific walks. I think one of them was with two outs and he was ahead one and two and whoever the hitter was fouled a couple of pitches off and then eventually he walked him. So um, Hicks's strikeout rate, I think, is higher this year than it's ever been. But there have been times, even, when he, uh, even with him throwing 102, where they make contact more than you would think. Now, he has both a four-seamer and a two-seamer, but they do seem to put the bat on the ball more than you would think for a guy who's throwing 102. So strikeouts are great, but even if it's ground balls or pop-ups or fly balls or whatever, those are good too. Um, you know, I, I think all things being equal, Jordan Romano is the closer on the scene when he comes back. Um, I believe he has earned that right. He's been an all-star twice. He's been here a long time, and I think he's having a really good year. You know, um, every time a closer blows a save, 
people go crazy because it's no, it's like it's never supposed to happen, but it happens. It happens to the best of them. But I think Hicks is a great option to have in front of Romano or in Romano's place if Romano was down for a day uh, once he comes back, that sort of thing. But Hicks is really good. I mean, if you, you look at this bullpen when Hicks and Richards come back and Chad Green gets here, and it's not even close as to whether this will be the best bullpen they've had in the, say, Vladdy Bo era. Like, it's not even close. If they had this bullpen or anything close to it in 2021, they might have won the World Series. Like, if they'd gotten if they'd gotten into the playoffs that year, with the year Vladdy was having and Marcus Simeon was having and Robbie Ray was having, like, there were some unbelievable things going on, but the bullpen kind of undermined them. So um, I think Hicks is a really nice addition, uh, a really nice addition. You can pitch him in the eighth, you can pitch him in the ninth. You can pitch him against righties. You can pitch him against lefties. You can pitch him for an inning. You can pitch him for two because he's done that several times this year. He's a valuable, valuable guy for this team. Um, Strikeouts are great, but any kind of outs are are important. And I I think people will continue to be a little bit surprised by the amount of contact sometimes that teams make against him. Hopefully it's not quality contact. Yeah, I think the contact is something that will surprise people because I think everyone's kind of wrapped their head around, okay, he can be a touch wild from time to time, but I don't think they're they're quite prepared for that. You, you kind of touched on this with throwing Richards into the bunch, Swanson obviously another arm, ba- arm back there. The thing I really like about it is that they have, you know, when we, we think of building a great pen, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, you just think of power, 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 and of course you want a lot of power and speed back there, but it has so many different looks you can give. Like, we know what Richards is able to do with this change up Swanson has a bit of a different profile than than Hicks and Romano do you know Romano a different closer from Hicks like it doesn't have to just be you know I'm not telling you anything you don't know but it doesn't have to just be okay six six goes to this seven goes to this eight goes to this and then Romano in the ninth depending on what a lineup is able to throw at them they have so many different types of relievers and then throw in a great lefty like Mesa it it really is a really well-rounded group not just one with a you know a, a high end top Yeah, and you want different looks. Like Richards and Swanson are guys who, as righties, have very good numbers against lefties. Richards because of the changeup, Swanson because of the splitter. Kind of similar stuff for the two of them. You've got a second lefty now, Yenesis Cabrera, who's been really important. Like he's had um, maybe six appearances, and like five of them have been really good and really important in, in high leverage spots. Jimmy Garcia they like against righties. The other two guys I talked about they like against lefties. Hicks can get anybody. Romano can get anybody. Uh, and then Chad Green, uh, who apparently looks like himself from every report after every outing, looks like Chad Green, and they just want to build him up a little bit more. I think he's scheduled to pitch tonight for Buffalo, and they're hoping to maybe go over an inning, you know, get four or five outs, something like that, see how he's doing. Then maybe a back-to-back, and then maybe bring him up. But he's a guy who, for the Yankees, pitched in the sixth inning, the seventh inning, the eighth inning, the ninth inning, multiple innings, whatever. So, um, it's good that guys have different looks and different secondary pitches. This is part of what makes a bullpen good is you can specifically say, oh, those three guys who are coming up, I think they're susceptible to this. The days of, you know, Brent's in the seventh and Dan's in the eighth and Justin's in the ninth, those are gone. Like those are, those are long gone. It's all about, uh, sorry, Brent, I didn't mean to make it. <laughs> so no, it's okay. I'm the new guy yeah. and you know, you're new on guy, the call right? and it's his new show. Guy, yeah. So I can, I can yeah. handle that. Yeah, I didn't put myself in the ninth, so give me credit for that. So, but, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 so, so, so much more. I can't emphasize this enough, and we try to say this on the air. It's so much more about where they are in the other team's line, about the leverage, right, where they are in the other team line, lineup, how the big, 
how big the situation is. Um, if it's lefties, you're not going to see Jimmy Garcia. Um, you're going to see Swanson or Richards or Mazo or Cabrera, something like that. Like they, they know what they're doing. This is a plan. And, and, um, you know, I know people say, yeah, but you've got to be flexible in the game and there is room for flexibility in the game. Um, but I, I think it's really well thought out before the game about what kinds of pitchers the other team's hitters are susceptible to. So, you know, if you've got a lefty hitting nine, one, two for Cleveland, you're getting, that's a Mesa spot. That's a Cabrera spot. And, and listen, the results are there. This bullpen has been as good as any bullpen in baseball the last couple of months. Yeah, I mean, if Chad Green can beat Chad Green, uh, it is it is scary, and it could be the differentiator here for the Toronto Blue Jays uh, in, in big games down the stretch and in the playoffs, just the quality of the bullpen, uh, which has come together, uh, it seems, uh, in short order here, but maybe this was plotted uh, long ago. The competition is a good thing, of course, in the bullpen. Might not be so good in the infield or in the utility realm for one Santiago Espinal, another not another big night, but a big night for Kevin Biggio. Of course, he's the story last night and he has the secret weapon of, you know, left-handedness and all that sort. Uh, but when Bo Bichette comes back, I, I guess decisions have to be made. Is, does the future look bleak here for Santiago Espinal? Yeah, so I, I just wanted to mention, I didn't even mention Jay Jackson, who's been really good in the bullpen too. Like that's mm-hmm. how deep the bullpen has been and his slider is so good against righty, so another weapon for them. And the Espinal one is very interesting. Um, he was great the first half of last year, right? And he was an all-star and, and it was an injury replacement for somebody else. But still, Santiago Espinal was an all-star last year. Like that's how good he was. Um, he played great defense and he had a great first half of the season with the bat. Um, it's it's a very interesting question you ask. It's one that I have thought about. It's one that we have talked about kind of internally ourselves, you know, uh, on the uh, on the way to the ballpark or between innings or, or something like that. I wasn't 100% convinced that it was er- Ernie Clement who was going to get sent down this week. Mm. Uh, Espinal's got options, but Clement got sent down. Espinal stayed, but you're right. When Bo Bichette comes back, They've got a decision to make. Somebody's, you know, if everybody's healthy, somebody's got to come off the roster. I don't think it's Paul DeYoung. Um, I think they keep him because I believe he's probably, he, well, I believe he's a better defensive shortstop yeah. than than Santiago Espinal is. So, it, yeah, it, it, they might run into a crunch that involves Espinal. And he, he, it's, it's not inconceivable that he could get sent down to the minors. Yeah, you know, things change. Guys get hot, guys get hurt, whatever. But, um, if Bo's back in a week or 10 days, and I'm not quite sure that's going to happen, but whenever Bo comes back, I certainly think it's within the realm of, of possibility. Like you said, Vigio offers a couple of things that Espinal doesn't. One is the left-handed bat, and one is playing first, second, and right. Um, if there's no Espinal, uh, you know, I guess you know, you've got David Schneider who can play second. Schneider's played a little bit of third. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, what if Schneider goes over 20, right? Um, does he go back? That's the face that's of the franchise? The I honestly right? can't yeah. see that happening. I don't know. The mustache of the franchise. After all those people went to the dollar store, about <laughs> fake mustaches to wear last night. Um, you know, a lot can happen. It, it's funny. Baseball's a long marathon, but a lot of things can happen quickly. And so I think we've just got to let this play out as Bo continues to rehab. Um, see how Westman all does with his opportunities, see how Schneider does, see how the young does. But 
yeah, there will be another decision coming for this team. Yeah, things do tend to just sort themselves out. Uh, but in the end, I guess a decision may have to be made. And it seems like, you know, less and less reason to prioritize uh, Santi uh, at this moment. Uh, Dan, this was fun catching up. Big opportunity for the Blue Jays in Cleveland. You'll be on the call for the remaining three games of the four-game set. We're looking forward to it. And we're looking forward to our next chat uh, when we have it. All right, guys. Thanks. Have a great one. That's Dan Schulman, Blue Jays play-by-play announcer for SportsCenter and Insider, brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. You're lucky Ailish wasn't here. There's no way he would have made you the closer. You would have got oh, the no, seventh, no, yeah, then he yeah, would have oh, been yeah. eighth, and oh, then yeah. Ailish closed. I'm, for I'm sure. more of a seventh inning guy anyway. Like, I think I was miscast. I... Again, Dan's being a little modest. I mean, we're totally modest. Ninth inning with a bullet. And also, let's be honest about me. It's like I have closers mentality of like I'm up in the break. I'm walking around. I'm drinking (laughs) far too much coffee. I'm a little bit manic. You're Jordan Hicks. I'll take it. Honestly, I don't know. If there's anything my life in my life I do at 104 miles an hour. I I actually ventured to do nothing other than drive my car, and I don't even think no nope, miles kilometers. No, I'm not allowed to do that no, one. So, nope. so uh, yeah, uh, definitely not on the way to work in the mornings when they just set crews and come in. Definitely not then. Cruise dangerous in the morning. It is. I I was so proud of myself. I set cruise when I got on the highway in Burlington and did not take it off until I had to turn onto the DVP. That's good. I'm like, that's a a big turn. I don't want to do that one at the top of end of speed, but that was a great feeling. Don't do Hicks speed. No. On the ramps. Okay, uh, let's get to uh, a break because we got Frank Sarabelli. We have hockey news. Oh, my God. Hockey news and a major, major hockey guest. Frank will dish on Dubas landing Carlson. Jeff Jackson ending up with the Edmonton Oilers. A lot of good stuff to dig into with Frank as, you know, we're in the midst of the dog days of summer, but a little NHL news may kickstart things just a little bit. Frank Saravelli, NHL insider and president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com, comes on with us after the break. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Final block, fan morning show, Sports at 590, the fan, Gunner and Cuthbert. We'll do a mini wake and rake. I guess you guys abandoned the wake and rake a little bit. Yeah, we do, we honestly, I'll, just trying to keep McKee on the rails to talk to the guests and like get that in <laughs> is a lot. So the idea of like, okay. hey, here's a structured segment we're going to do. It is tough. It was one of the most difficult. I got to come up with a pick right now is a little difficult in the midst of summer, but we'll we'll try to do that. So Let me tell you how that would go. Go, nah, wasn't, No one told me I had to do it. It's only on the lineup every day. Eight, every day at 8.50, McKee. Every day at 8.50. It's not every day that we get Frank Saravalli, though, at 8.30, but we have that today. Uh, big news in the NHL over the weekend, Eric Carlson ending up with the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, Frank, how did one Kyle Dubas get it done? He got it done by Brisk, taking on four years of Eric Carlson at Inbox at age 33, and he came up to do it. And the Pittsburgh Penguins are dead set on maximizing the window that they have remaining. It'll be Evgeny Malkin and Chris Letang before it slams shut. 
Uh, Frank, you sound like you're underwater just a little bit. So we're going to try to reconnect here quickly to make sure that uh, we got good audio. Uh, just to make sure that we get the, uh, you know, I told you the last, dish. last time we had Frank on, he was offended. Uh, he said, do you have any news on Austin Matthews? No, no update. And then he asked to go. It actually, was how that interview went. So I'm, okay. I'm happy we have real live hockey to discuss with. Yeah, Frank but I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to play too much here. Yeah. I don't, I don't, we will get, we'll get reconnected with Frank here, yeah. but uh, hopefully we're not, uh, bothering him too much hey, today. You know Mike. It could be all right. He sounded like he was on the move a little bit. So he did. That could be a little bit dicey, but hopefully we'll get him back to make sure that uh, we get all this, uh, we get the full scoop on Dubas landing Eric Carlson. We're not convinced totally. We're not there that they're going to be an elite, 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 elite level team. Could be one of the more fun teams in the league for sure, though, with the 100-point defenseman uh, now with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and we have Frank back on the line. Uh, we did get a little bit of that initial answer, though uh, it was a little choppy. So, Frank, uh, Dubas getting it done, maybe being a little bit more creative, getting to the price that San Jose needed, but uh, was it still a small price to pay for the Norris Trophy winner? Well, I think what you didn't pay in, in asset price you took on in risk, I think is the real answer. Eric Carlson's 30 30- has four years left at $10 million bucks. still one of the top paid defensemen in the league. The Sharks retain almost a million and a half, and that's essentially how they were able to work it out. But what they didn't give up in significant acquisition costs and what they were able to move off of their books, they were taking on a different risk in Carlson. And I get it from their perspective totally. They're trying to maximize the window that they have with Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang before it slammed shut. Yeah, th- so I guess my question is, do you think that this was Kyle Dubas and the Penguins saying, we have to have Eric Carlson on our blue line? Or do you think that this was Kyle Dubas and the Penguins saying, this is the best way we can get a $10 million level asset without giving much up asset-wise in return? I mean, I know they threw in the first pick there, but it was because, like you said, the Sharks didn't eat a ton of money there. There wasn't a ton going back the other way. Like, How much of this do you think was them having a bullseye on Carlson versus just the idea of we have to add something to give this group a little more punch? I think it's both. Uh, I think both things can be true. Um, I think it's probably pretty accurate to say that when Kyle Dubas was in charge of the Toronto Maple Leafs, that I think they had checked in with the San Jose Sharks months ago before the deadline to inquire about Carlson. So clearly Dubas is a believer in Carlson and what's What's not to believe? I mean, the 100-point season, three-time Norris Trophy winner, these guys don't grow on trees. And he also just happens to fit the age scheme, if you want to call it that, that the Penguins have. I mean, four guys on their roster this upcoming season, 35 or older, and funny enough, Carlson doesn't even fit in that category. They have eight guys over 30. This is going to be one of the oldest, rosters that we've ever seen in the salary cap era if not the oldest and they're perfectly comfortable with that even if it means you know giving up some more future assets in first and second round picks because it essentially would have cost something similar to that just to move off of the deals that they did including Petrie and Granlin and some of those other players Jan Ruda that they ended up moving out that they kind of saw it as, well, we'd have to pay that anyway to get rid of those guys. 
let's get rid of them and take on Eric Carlson at the same time to try and maximize our chances. And look, Kyle Dubas addressed it head on after the trade saying, we have a lot to prove. This is a team that wasn't a playoff team last year, albeit very close. And to vault from that team that, hey, we're, you know, one of the 16 in the field to being a true Stanley Cup contender again, it's a long way to go from point A to B. But I think certainly moved in that direction with the addition of a 100-point defenseman. Yeah, I don't think there's much reason to doubt the pieces, right? Like Eric Carlson might not be a 100-point guy in a different role with Pittsburgh, sharing a little bit with Chris Letang, maybe playing more defensively responsible minutes because you're not playing for a team like San Jose who just wants to, I guess, put you in a position to put up 100 points where you're free and clear. The risk profile is different. Um, but Sidney Crosby, you still have all the confidence in the world. I think you should still have all the confidence in the world. The pieces are really strong. The team is older, as you mentioned. But it seems like, you know, they're trying, they're obviously trying to make best use of the remaining years of Sidney Crosby. But do you think they have enough to not just be a playoff team, but one that actually competes for a Stanley Cup? Is there enough there, or is it re- going to require uh, more facelift or more? Uh, additions to the facelift in order for Sidney Crosby to get to the point where he's got a Stanley Cup caliber roster around him? Well, there were important depth additions made before the Carlson transaction. Like, I think Achari is going to be an intriguing piece, and um, Riley Smith coming over from Vegas is going to be another one that you're like, okay, that's a nice fit. I personally don't see them vaulting into that contender category, and I think the big reason for that is this. For the first time in five or six years, last season, Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin both played a full season. They didn't have any injuries. They weren't banged up for long periods of time. You didn't see Malkin or Crosby miss 20 or a 30-game stretch, and yet they still ended up falling short. And I know that a chunk of this roster is being changed out almost half of it, eight players that were in the lineup for their regular season finale aren't back. And I do think the changes that they've made have been positive, but to go from, you know, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 spot in the, in the standings and just think about it from another perspective. Like uh, does anyone look at, the Winnipeg Jets in the West, or maybe they don't have the star power that Pittsburgh does, or previously the Nashville Predators, some of these other teams that were hanging around, does anyone consider them true cup contenders? I don't, I don't think so, and that's kind of the way I look at the Penguins. And then, oddly enough, the Caps re-signing Tom Wilson to a $45 million deal over the weekend as well Like, both those teams are stuck in incredibly difficult spots where they're trying to make it work with what they have when at times it feels like they're kind of prolonging the pain of what's coming on the other side. But when it comes to the Penguins, they were already more or less down that road, and now they're just doubling down and further committing to it with Carlson. Yeah, the the Washington one's interesting, right? Because it looks like, okay, we're going to keep, 
Ovi's band of brothers around here while he tries to chase Gretzky's record. And if we can be competitive in that window, let's go for it is kind of the way it seems like they're, they're looking at things there from the sharks perspective on, on this deal. You know, how, how fair is it to say that they chose to, you know, cause I, you look at it and you see the return and the lack of it, quite frankly, and that it's just bad contracts going back. And I know they got a first rounder in there, but what could the return have been if they were willing to eat serious money on this deal. I mean, obviously just based on all the reporting, it seems like something that, that the ownership group was never too comfortable going down that road. But what do you think a return for Carlson could have looked like if they would have, and I'm not, I'm not talking about a full 50% retention here, but if you eat $3 million of that deal or maybe four, well, what do you think the return could have possibly looked like for them? I don't think it changes all that much. I mean, incrementally, maybe a little bit, but, the max that I'm told they were willing to consider was 20%. And it's not so much, yet, especially for a team that I want to say rebuilding, but I'm not entirely sure what the Sharks are up to. For a team that's in that spot, the only goal should be maximizing the return. Once you go down the path of retaining and, and Eric Carlson's dead cap money is on your books for the next four seasons, you might as well go ham. I mean, that's the way I look at it, is once you begin yeah, to I retain, that, that retained salary spot is chewed up and it's never coming back. So whether it's, you know, one and a half million bucks or three or five or whatever the number is, you've done the damage. You might as well go, go all in and chew up as much as you can and, and flex some of the financial muscle that your owner has to then get a better return and try and see if you can boost your team in the direction that it's heading. That said, I'm not entirely sure what the Sharks are doing. What Are they rebuilding? Are they trying to remain somewhat competitive at the same time? This is a team that for the last four years has finished in the 28th place range. They've been in the lottery conversation the last number of years, and I just now you're taking – your engine, your 100-point defenseman out of your lineup. Like, but at the same time, they've traded for Anthony Duclair. They took on these contracts. I don't know if they see these guys as flippable assets or, or how they're viewing it, but to end up with that kind of return, I get that it had to be done. Um, I just think perhaps the idea should have been trying to maximize return instead of trying to limit the salary cap damage. How much of that maybe short-sightedness, if you want to put it that way, uh, is Mike Greer's doing? I mean, I, I'd have to say when, when looking at the totality of sort of the mess that the Sharks are in, um, it, it kind of has to all fall on him. He's the guy at the controls, and I think that's the biggest thing missing from the Sharks and what they're up to is, a clear plan. You know, you see someone like Danny Briere come into Philadelphia and he's new at the job and trying to figure things out and the landscape and how it works. But from the second he came in, using the R word, rebuild right away. This is what we're doing. This is the sort of systematic teardown and takedown of the roster that we have. And, you know, other than that, we're trying to get worse before we can get better. I don't know what the Sharks are trying to tackle. Are they, are they rebuilding? 
it seems like they kind of are, but they also kind of have, you know, one foot on the ledge still and haven't exactly leaped off with a team that's already been really bad. So I, I think that's the one thing that I'm left wanting is just have a definitive plan and then go out and chase it. Yeah, I completely echo that there. Uh, last one from from me, Frank. Uh, Matt Dumba, one-year deal with the Coyotes. Uh, I look at this and a couple of things pop to mind. One, hmm, would I, if I'm the Leafs, would I rather have that than John Klingberg at four and a half? That's a fair question, I, I think. And then the other one is, how much did he misplay his market? I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if this was a case where there were bigger offers out there. I imagine somebody would have had interest in him earlier on in free agency. What do you think happened with Dumba? Because I think a lot of people, one, would be surprised to realize he's still a free agent and two that it's the uh, Yotes who pick him up I would say if he misread the market he's been misreading everything that's been written and said about him I mean you can go back to the trade deadline coverage on dailyfaceoff.com we had an in-depth scouting report where we looked at every facet of his game and talked to a bunch of teams around the league and I was told at that moment in time that the Minnesota Wild did not receive one single phone call about someone inquiring about his availability at the deadline. And part of the reason for that was his cap hit. Part of it was that he had been recently made a healthy scratch at the time. But all those signs should have been adding up to, this is a guy that is not going to be very well received on the market. And I think what would have been a smart decision, and not to say that things can't work in Arizona and you can't boost your game, but would be to go somewhere like Oliver Ekman Larson did, go to a really good team like Florida, take a little bit less money. You've already had some good paydays and try and rebuild your game on a team with a lot of support and structure. The big thing about Matt Dumba is he's got all of the physical tools and and attributes, but his risk profile, to use a term that we used earlier in the conversation Teams don't like it. He's, I, I think the best way to describe him is a kamikaze pilot. If he gets you in the neutral zone, look out. He will absolutely take your head off. But if he misses, it's a huge opportunity the other way. And not only that, he's also turnover prone in his own end. So he, he's got something. He's got the skill. He needs to reshape his game and reboot himself and – I like what Arizona's done this offseason to compete. I think they've stacked a bunch of really smart moves on top of each other, and they've got the draft capital and pipeline coming. But I think he could have used to go to a place that has some more support, a better team. Uh, last one, Frank. Uh, I got to ask you about Jeff Jackson, uh, the former agent of Connor McDavid, taking the CEO role in Edmonton, what it means for the Oilers, what it means for McDavid, what it means for the NHL here with agents slowly Nothing filtering here. into management and kind of taking over the league here. Uh, when you saw this news, where did your mind go? First thing was to Connor McDavid. Second thing was the succession plan that the Oilers needed to put in place. Um, There's no real secret that uh, Bob Nicholson was in the twilight of his career as CEO of the team. Ken Holland is in a spot where he has one year remaining on his deal, and I think almost everyone is expecting this to be his final season at the controls in the NHL. 
Um, and they needed to come up with a plan moving forward. There's lots of talk, you know, a few months ago when the Sens were still for sale, what will happen with Steve Steos? Will he have a prominent role in Edmonton's front office? The answer to that is no. And I think everyone still expects him to join the Ottawa Senators at some point in the near future once Michael Anlauer takes over. But in the meantime, the Oilers had some of those fundamental uh, succession plan questions to ask about uh, who's going to be the person steering the ship for Daryl Cates and who better than the agent of your, not just your most prominent player, but the best player in the world that has held and had a resume that so few people have had ever. NHL player, attorney, uh, front office experience with the Toronto Maple Leafs as an assistant GM, running a minor league team, uh, developed players in his agency. You, you go through the, the resume and it's sparkling, and then you add in the relationship factor with McDavid. Your key here over the next number of years is to make sure that Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid remain together. I had pegged the chances of that at north of 75% uh, just a few weeks ago, and now with this Jeff Jackson CEO news, I think it's north of 90%. Wow. Well, that's a pretty smart hire then for the Edmonton Oilers. Sounds like somebody the Leafs should have hired when they had a GM <laughs> opening, to be perfectly honest. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, uh, Frank, uh, we appreciate the time this morning. Uh, we're up against it a little bit, but of course, we appreciate the insight, and we'll do this again soon. Have a good one, guys. That's Frank Saravelli, NHL insider and president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com. Don't you, don't you dare throw to the wake and rake after putting that out. We can wait a day, okay? I, if we have time for it, we have time for it. Don't hit the okay, sounder okay. yet. Tell us. You, Get it off your chest. You, you, you tweet, we don't have to gamble today. You tweeted at me. You were the one who said, somebody do a mental health check on Brent Gunning. Uh, spoiler, <laughs> it's a little hyperbolic. Spoiler alert. It's not good. Uh why don't the Leafs just hire Brian Matthews as a community ambassador, nah, like 30 the, sheets so a year? Don't be so insecure. We don't need Connor McDavid there, here. There were people up in arms when Matthews and Kyle Dubas had the same agent. To like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. Or the Leafs GM having a direct <laughs> line to him. They're just, Not even the they're same just agent. making the agent the they GM. Just, they just work in the same office. It's ridiculous. And and look. Why, why the, is that ridiculous? It's ridiculous that it's like, He doesn't oh, represent Connor McDavid totally anymore. This is totally fine. This is above board. Yeah, okay. Okay, sure. You can't connect the dots. You can't see what's happening here. What just ask yourself? Just ask yourself this question: What would have happened if Judd Moldaver, the Mm -hmm. agent for Austin Matthews, was named? Leafs GM Probably, is going to be a president or something. You might have, uh, we might be not waiting on that Matthews contract. Yeah, we right might now. not. And you know what else we would hear? Oh, this is ridiculous. The league has to look into this. The league looked into it when the Leafs had refs at their summer skates. Mm. The league looked into it when they just opened the building and let guys work out. Other teams are like, we can't afford to turn the lights on in the summer. When the Leafs do something, it's got to be Mach 10 investigations. Take a look at it. What did we hear when Matt Murray went on LTIR? Better look at this. That's a shenanigans. Oh, and, they let and, that go. And, no. and the and the Oilers are just hiring McDavid's former agent. And it's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Move along, people. What? The Oilers are just allowed to have the best guys in perpetuity forever. Don't you know that's how it works? God, 
I, I had let it go. I had moved on. And then I heard the name again, hot under the collar. And that's why I got the closures mentality. on. We should have picked this up in the first hour. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. I'm on the Jays, by the way, <laughs> minus 125. It's not a parlay. It's a single play. Jays with Kikuchi on the bump in game two in Cleveland. Gunner and I will chat with you tomorrow.